Welcome to Healthy Minds, Healthy Hearts, with Bear and Arrow. Our guest today is an award-winning, international best-selling author, accomplished speaker, and workshop leader dedicating helping people through various life transitions on their journey to an extraordinary life. For more than 30 years and over several continents, she's been sharing her knowledge and wisdom with others. As the author of This Way Up, Seven Tools for Unleashing Your Creative Self and Transforming Your Life, she has been featured on TV's NZ's Breakfast Show, and her work has been featured in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, the Mindful Word, and Thrive Global. Her book, This Way Up, is the winner of International Excellence Self-Help Book of the Year. And as a woman in recovery, she's passionate about discussing trauma, addiction, and healing through creativity. Please welcome author Patty Clark. Thank you so much. Great to be here. How is your day going so far? My day is going wonderfully. Um, I live in New Zealand, so it is now um, Saturday morning for to your uh, Friday evening. Yeah. It's a sunny day. It's spring here to your oh. fall. And um, the main thing that brings me such incredible joy, God, I'm going to start crying before we even talk, <laughs> um, <laughs> is that my sons are home. Um, they've oh. been overseas for several years and they've returned to New Zealand to to live and work here, especially amidst the, um, the whole insanity with COVID and um, yeah. And um, they've just been back a few weeks, and I'm basically in my happiest place having nice. them home. That is yeah. great. Such diverse cultural experiences living in. Because were you you born in the United States? Yes, I was born in the Bay Area. Yeah, going to your book, you discuss your your husband and your children. Is all of the book based on a true story? No, no. It's so interesting you should you should ask that because I had a lot of friends that hadn't been, you know, sort of distant friends that hadn't been in touch in a while. And mm-hmm. when the book got published, so many people wrote to me and said, oh my God, I didn't know that Jeff had died. No, he didn't. It, it, that's fictitious. It's a, um, it's a fictitious story based a lot on my own reality. So um, I was born and raised in a chaotic alcoholic home. I did have a lot of similar experiences and creativity is absolutely a um, a touchstone for me in my recovery as well as my sanity. I never actually had those dreams with Gaia. However, I I was, um, I had something similar when I was doing meditation and I had sort of um, experiences that came to me that influenced the book and I didn't um, have that same exact uh, therapy, although I had several different therapy sessions that influenced that description. It is an absolutely a beautiful story. I, I love how you pulled everything together in a neat little bow to where you feel like it actually is true. I felt like that was 100% your life because it's told so, so well. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. You know, it's when when a a person writes and they sort of birth this book out into the world, it's very rare to get feedback of any kind. I mean, sometimes you get some good reviews, sometimes you get some real shit reviews and it's painful. Um, But but 
there's not it's not often that you can hear that somebody actually really enjoyed it or was really impacted. Thank you for the feedback. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You mentioned being raised in a home with alcoholism. Can you touch a little on that? I I relate a lot to it and so I'm curious to hear your experience. And absolutely. And it's it's definitely um, now as a 63-year-old woman in recovery, I can look back and I can say that I'm grateful for the experiences. However um, traumatic and painful it was at the time, it did shape me to who I am. So there is some, I am able to touch gratitude now. But so I was raised in the Bay Area with a workaholic uh, father and an alcoholic mother. And my father was what was termed, what he termed a controlled alcoholic because he had a very successful business and he looked really good on the outside. Whereas my mother was the identified problem because she was a sloppy drunk and, um, and extremely depressed. Um, My dad left when I was 12 years old. My, his last words the day before Christmas Eve were um, to my mother, think about Jim Beam. And he took off and left when I was 12 and my sister was 16. And my mother's alcoholism uh, spiraled down. Um, she was very depressed, very, um, uh, she, she was a brilliant woman. And for her, you know, that time in the world, she should have been doing other things. She, she, she was, before she got married, she was a translator um, at the ports of San Francisco. She went to Berkeley. She was really, really an in- highly intelligent, amazing woman that was a good Italian Catholic and got married and had kids and stayed home and lost herself is basically what happened. So my mother died when I was 16 and my father moved back home. You know, thank God for my sister who's four years older than me. She really influenced um, my life in every way. Um, We were drinking buddies and, you know, using buddies together. We did all kinds of drugs together. Um, This was the early 70s in California near San Francisco. So drugs were readily available. Yeah, I'm really grateful and lucky that um, I always wanted to go to university. I always wanted to go to college. And my mother went to Berkeley. My sister went to Berkeley. My aunt went to Berkeley. And so I just sort of set my sights on going to Berkeley. And that, in a lot of ways, saved me because I did focus on doing okay in school instead of just using, which I did a lot of in high school. Then I ended up finishing college, growing up, and drove across country, ended up in Alaska. I was 22. In one week, this is in one week period, a friend of mine said, hey, Mike, the condo next door is for sale. And you could get like a 0.5% loan at the time to buy houses there. Um, I was thinking about buying this condo. I got a job. um, I I was bartending at night and I was teaching during the day and I got a job to full-time teach or I was offered a job to full-time teach. And in that same week, um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, had gone to Australia and he sent me an aerogram saying, let's meet in Bali and travel. And in that one week's time, I stood at this sort of real crossroads and thought I could go this direction, have a job, buy a house, all these drugs, 
uh, you know, this insane lifestyle that would be well supported because the money was good, or I can drop everything and I could go with my boyfriend to Bali, who Lord knows how how this happened, but I ended up with a guy that's not an addict. Even at the time, even with how screwed up my head was, I stood at this crossroads and thought, whatever decision I make here is going to absolutely change my life. I'm going to be, um, my life is going to be decided with this decision. And I really was clear on that. Yeah. And I decided to, um, to go to Bali with Jeff. Truly, truly believed that saved my life. And that was in um, 1984. So I was 26. Had I continued on the, the line that I was on with staying in Juneau, Alaska, I would have really been screwed up or possibly dead. And so instead, I met up with Jeff and we traveled in around um, Asia for about four years. And during that time, uh, my sister got sober. And as I said, she was a strong influence in my life. And I um, came back to the U.S. and my sister was clean and sober and she um, brought me to my first AA meeting. After you made that life-changing decision to go with Jeff, has alcohol alcoholism revisited your life? Are you? Yeah, it has. It has actually. I tend to call myself an addict, not that it matters, but um, one of the things that I really um, sort of rage against the machine on is that differentiation between alcoholism and addiction. We, I tend to say addict because addiction includes everyone. But um, Jeff, what didn't you drink or use? And um, I got sober in Arizona. Um, my, I went to my first AA meeting with my sister, but I didn't get sober then. The way that I got sober, interestingly, was I was living in Ashland, Oregon at the time with Jeff. He was um, finishing his degree in, in Ashland at Southern Oregon State. And um, he uh, and I went to, a, um, to an astrologer, which is interesting. Anyway, mm. um, on a... On a sort of fluke. A friend of mine that I met there said, oh, this woman's great. So I went to her. When she was looking at my chart, she said, huh, there's a lot of um, drinking in this little quadrant or whatever. And and I said, oh, yeah, yeah. My mother died of alcoholism. She said, oh, that makes sense. You know, if you look here, that makes sense. But there's still more. And, and hmm. I went, oh, yeah, my father, he still drinks. Okay, okay, that makes sense if you look here. But there's still more. And I said, well, yeah, well, my sister's in recovery and blah, blah, blah. And she just put her hands down and she said, Patty, are you an alcoholic? And I just burst into tears, ran out of her house. Literally, it was like, holy shit, because um, it was just so blatant and in my face. And so um, we ended up moving to Arizona for Jeff's uh, degree, um, like the next day, I think. And um, I went to my first AA meeting, a women's meeting in Tucson, Arizona, and um, met some amazing women. And that's how I got sober the first time. And that was in 1988, two days before my 30th birthday. I got sober. I had amazing friends, etc. cetera. Um, fast forward, we moved to New Zealand in 1992. We wanted to um, have babies when we moved here. It's another long story of how we ended up here. But anyway, um, so I got pregnant early on, and a big piece of me wanting to be sober was not to be my mother. So that was a huge piece. I wanted to have kids. I wasn't going to replicate my own upbringing and my own mother. In this small town, most of the recovery, most of the 12-step recovery was a lot of old men, and they were very pedantic, big book thumpers, and I really lost uh, my enthusiasm. The, the way I got sober in Tucson was with women who were very emotionally sober. 
and in this small town, the people that I knew in recovery were not so emotionally sober. The way the things that I heard were like, um, put a plug in the jug, shut up, go to meetings. That's all you need. And when there was emotion, it was sort of cut cut off at the knees. So I quit going to meetings. And then at the same time, my kids started school. And it sounds so funny now, but it wasn't at the time. Um, all of the cool mums um, were getting together after school and the kids would play and the cool mums would drink Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris on the deck or at the beach and watch the kids because we live right on the beach here. And um, and I wanted that. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to do that. <laughs> um, so after I'd been sober for almost 13 years, I started drinking again. And it's not the men's fault at the meetings here, and it's not the women's fault that were the cool mummies with the wine, and it's no one's fault, but I had great justification. And so I started drinking again, and I was actually out drinking um, for about 12 years, so almost as long as I was in recovery. And um, I basically uh, started writing this way up and just really, really strongly got this hit while I was meditating, like, you are a hypocrite to be writing this book and still drinking. And, mm -hmm. and, and no lie, it was my own, you know, higher self, inner self, whatever language you want to use. And luckily, I listened. And so um, I was at a coffee shop, and I recognized someone from 12 years earlier when I was in recovery. And I walked up to the guy that I recognized. And I said, I don't know if you remember me, blah, blah, blah. And he said, yeah, I do remember you, Patty. And then I looked over to his partner and I said, I'm glad you remember me, but actually it's not you I want to talk to, it's her. And I looked at her, her name's Rosie, who features in my second book, actually. And I said to Rosie, do you know of a good woman's meeting in um, anywhere near this town? Because I really want the connection, but I don't want to go back to the meetings that I've been to. And she looked at me and she said, you got it, sister. Let's start one. Oh, my gosh. And we did. Let's see. That was seven years ago. I, I got sober again in 2014. Um, she and I started an NA meeting, actually, to welcome all um, all people of all addictions and get rid of the um, the sort of the closed-minded mentality that exists here. It doesn't exist everywhere, but it really existed in our small town. And so now this an A meeting that we started that welcomes any addict of any kind um, is thriving here. It is co-ed, you know, people that identify with different addictions, but we're all addicts and we all identify as addicts and just talk about, we talk about emotional recovery. We talk about the trauma that led to the addiction and um, have that connection and that unity that um, that keeps us all clean and sober. Yeah, definitely take the strong support system. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, yeah. that's what I realized actually was when I quit going to meetings because of these particular people, um, I lost that connection. I lost that feeling of support. So it's not, it doesn't have to be 12 step. You know, there's a lot of people mm -hmm. that don't identify with 12 step, whether it's because of the patriarchy, because of the, 
you know, spiritual element, whatever, whatever else it is that doesn't connect to you, what we need is the connection. You know, I, I love the quote from Johan Hari that says, um, the opposite of the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's connection. He he talks about that, that 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 connection and that that feeling of belonging and of being seen and being held that's what helps us into that um into that place of being able to deal with the addiction because we're when we look at um at the trauma that is usually behind addiction what we're looking for is to fill the hole the hole that was left from the trauma and we fill it um, in a maladaptive way. You know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Gabor Mate or have heard him speak or read his books. His um, his book that that really got me hooked was um, in the realm of hungry ghosts. But he's also done a beautiful series on trauma and addiction. And you know, he talks about addiction makes sense. The addiction isn't bad. We learned how to soothe ourselves and to take care of that pain and that hole, but with a maladaptive way, and that we need to find something else to help fill that hole. And we find it with connection. And that's why, in my opinion, that's why 12-step works if you find your tribe. But that's the secret. You have to find your tribe to feel that connection and to be held and supported. And and for some people, it's not 12-step. You know, I know a lot of women that that quit using when they when they read Holly Whitaker's Quit Like a Woman. It's a great book. And she's she's not anti-12-step, I won't say that, but she talks about a different way than 12-step. And it's very much um, directed at women so you can get past a lot of the patriarchy that is just seeped in 12-step programs. So Right, because not yeah. every person is going to need the same exact kind of help because our brains are structured differently. That's a wonderful exactly. resource. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, absolutely. My mother uh, struggled with narcotics more than alcohol. But when I've talked to her about her childhood and her pain, she talks a lot about how um, nobody loved her and she was alone and a lot of this. So I understand that that's why she started to fill those gaps. From my experience, no one's coming to rescue you. You have to get up. Like I can sit and I can watch TV all day long, not pay my bills, not eat healthy. No one's going to come and cook me dinner, shut off my TV, tell me to exercise. That's something I have to do for myself. So I struggle to understand where her pain comes from because my experience has been different. Mm. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that that's that's really the crux of it is we need support we need to be held but we've got to do this shit ourselves we have right. to yeah. no one's going to do it for us we we can um you know we can be told i love you please don't use a million times but until we decide that we are going to stop nothing is going to change and and that's there's a um, there's a million bumper stickers in twelve step programs, but you know one of them is to thine own self be true, and you've got to take care of this stuff yourself. And until we learn self love, we will continue to struggle. It, it, it just it, it's just the way it is. And until we learn that self love, we can't be 
able to love fully of anyone else nor accept love from anyone else. So I truly believe we need that support to help us stand on our feet. And then we need help and support to give us direction and to cheer us on. But we've got to run the race ourselves. What is your perspective on it being hereditary? That's a great question. And that's, um, that's something I think that a, um, that a lot of, yeah, it's, it's a very hot topic right now. And I don't know if you know that or not, but, um, because in 12 step programs, we are taught that it's a disease. Mm -hmm. It's a hereditary disease. That's kind of a dead end. That's where you end up. Whereas from the research that I've done, um, I've read of too many people that say there was no addiction in my family in terms of um, specific substances. Perhaps multi-generationally there was, but people talk about the specifics. Whereas if you look at trauma, the trauma, in my opinion, is the basis, is where it comes. Now, often, quite often, you know, my case, in, I'm you know using myself as an example, quite often the trauma that we that was brought on in childhood is linked to addiction Mm -hmm. so that often shows up we um we see that a lot of abuse is perpetrated when the 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 perpetrator is high drunk um acting out on their own abuse on their own um addiction, I should say. And which usually, if you go back to that generation, is led from another trauma. And you can go back to another one, and there's another trauma. Um, I think it's all really linked up. And, and I think that the problem that I've seen with um, with some 12-step programs, and again, I, I've got a lot of... Um, a lot of haters because I talk like this because I'm in 12 step. And so a lot of people in 12 step do not want to hear anyone criticize 12 step programs because it's kept them clean and sober. And I really understand that. And I battled with it myself. However, when you say, or when, when it is said in a 12 step room that it's a disease and, um, and it's going to get you unless you do this, I struggle with that because I, 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 I'm, yeah, yeah, I really do. And my, my, my book that's, um, hopefully, hopefully she says coming out at the end of this year or the beginning (laughs) of next year is about this very topic that, um, that with some recovery circles, people do not want to hear anything else. And they get scared when you bring up, um, you know, there's other things behind it and that, my opinion is unless you deal with this shit and deal with it on a deeper level, just going to meetings is not enough. It is going to resurface in your life in some other way. Maybe you aren't going to use, but you won't be thriving. So in my opinion, I think everybody's got to do therapy if they've been, you know, and again, I got a lot of haters out there, but I think everybody's got to do some kind of therapy because if you were practicing addiction, it means you were trying to fill up a hole and filling up the hole. Yes, the connection is part of it, but you've got to dig out the wound because if you just put a a bandaid over it, it's going to continue to fester. It's got to be cleaned. And in my opinion, some kind of therapy is usually necessary hurt people hurt people is what they say so yep. even if it's not hereditary if 
parent with trauma, it makes total sense. If they don't resolve that trauma, they're going to either create new trauma or pass down their trauma onto their child. Not always, but it, it makes total sense that that would happen. Absolutely. That, that, that's, that's spot on. And that's what the research shows. And that's what um, Gabor Mate's, um, it's, I, I, you know, it just is so obvious that, as you said, hurt people hurt people. Trauma begets trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for my own mother with her alcoholism, she was um, never treated. She was never treated for depression. She never dealt with her, um, with her addiction. And um, in retrospect, I can I can see all of the reasons behind it. You know, when I first um, when I first got sober, as I said, my, my sister brought me to my first meeting, and Karen and I were um, my sister Karen and I were sober to, are sober together, um, and we used to talk about how much we wish that we had been able to bring our mother to a meeting. You know, how mm-hmm. amazing that would have been. Um, she had a lot of work she would have done too. I would have loved it if she had found a circle of friends that were um, clean and sober and women to support her. And there would have been a lot of work to do in there as well. Um, but, you know, Gabor Mate talks about being a workaholic. And so that his uh, addiction is socially sanctioned. He looks good. You know, yeah. you can be a workaholic or, um, you know, if you have enough money, even a shopaholic, and really carry it off and look good and look like you've got your life together. But if you look at what are you doing to deal with your pain, when you are so uncomfortable in your skin, where do you turn? You'll start going down a, a path of identifying your addiction. Where is the line between a coping mechanism and addiction? Yeah, that's a great question great question and i don't know but to my in my opinion <laughs> i don't you know i, I guess it, yeah it depends on the person i guess it depends on the person it depends on their motivation it depends on you know can you sit in your pain can you, you know, there's a, a wonderful poem by a, a woman named Araya that's been out there forever and ever, um, where she says, it's called The Invitation, and, um, and she says, can you stand in the fire and not shrink back? You know, can you actually stand there? Can you sit in your pain? Can you be with it and not go do something else. Most people these days, it's, it's screen, you know, ah, I'm spinning, I'm spinning. What can I do? And I'll get online and I will waste several hours on social media that um, just takes me out of myself. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, scroll through shit. And um, until I feel like, okay, I'm, I'm numb enough that now I can go do whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. And on the bright side, I'm not driving drunk, so I'm not killing anybody. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, not, um, I'm not thriving. You know, that's, that's where I kind of draw the line. Am I thriving? You know, and if, if every time you're uncomfortable, you don't want to go and talk to the person that you're uncomfortable with. Instead, you go out and run. Maybe you, maybe you need to look at that. Mm-hmm. You know, are we not all addicts in our own way? Mm. It, because what is an addict? An addict is someone who lacks proper um, coping mechanisms, who's not processing their trauma. So without that, wouldn't we all be addicts? 
Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. And and Gabor Mate says, indeed, we are all addicts. But then again, you, you guys also asked the question, what is the line? There's nothing wrong with going on social media. There's nothing wrong with watching dumb TV. It depends on how long you do it and what's behind it. You know, I, I said, I told you guys earlier, my kids are home and we've had fun watching some dumb TV and and I love it. And there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but that's not all we do. We've also been having some amazing, deep, rich, wonderful conversations. If they were home and all we did was watch dumb TV and not talk, there's the, there's the line crossed, right? Yeah. You know, and if you're with somebody and there's some conversations that really need to be had and instead you're you know, I'll, I'll use dumb TV again because it's just right up, but there's conversations that need to be had and you're not doing it because you're too uncomfortable. That, that's where the line is, in my opinion. Mm. Um, but, and also I'm not disputing disease at all. There are some people that absolutely, I believe have, um, you know, have carried it through after multi-generational addiction. And, and it's certainly there. And I, would not argue that at all. And I too am reluctant, you know, I, I, I am a, uh, you know, a card carrying badge wearing addict, uh, but I am still reluctant to ever argue that because there's some people that, 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 that works for and that can prove it, you know, through multi-generations. And I'm not going to say, no, you're wrong, yeah. but I would also say, I hope you're doing some trauma work. And taking ownership of it, because sometimes exactly. that word disease can take the ownership away from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and let me say that I also deeply, deeply hold the belief that we need to treat addiction the same way we treat a lot of other mental health problems with compassion and caring and um, help to recover. You know, so in that way, you know, we can compare it to a disease in that, um, you know, the war, the war on drugs is an obvious failure, an obvious huge failure. So what we need, in my opinion, is deep, deep compassion and, um, and help. You know, it should not be um, throw them in jail and tell them, you know, tell them that they're weak-willed and, um, you know, yeah. screwing up. Um, you know, I've, I've known way too many people that are, you know, either directly or indirectly through family member, et cetera, with the opioid addiction. And mm -hmm. don't, don't say that they're weak and, you know, blah, 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 any other things. Help, help, compassion, empathy. That's what's needed here. And so if it helps to call it a disease, go yeah, for it. Absolutely. How do you remain supportive? not enable and help great great question um codependence is what we're talking about here and um what i would recommend to be honest and i don't know what um what's available where you are to be honest but um what was incredibly healing and helpful for me was my acoa work which is adult child of alcoholics so acoa work is probably the deepest work I did 
um, not not probably, definitely, was the deepest work I did. Um, and it's having a resurgence. It was very, very big in the 80s. And it's having a resurgence. Um, my sister is, has told me, my sister's still in the Bay Area. And um, she's told me about some ACOA meetings that she's um, found that have just sort of um, grown again, but with a um, uh, reworked and um, renovated thing. And it's more... Um, uh, reflecting the times more. That's one of the first things I'd recommend to you is to read anything around ACOA work because what we do is we tend to slip into child again when we're dealing with our parents. Both of my parents are dead and I'm 63, so I'm, you know, I mean, it makes sense. But the um, even so, um, we slip into child again and we... Uh, there's a, a level of frustration and um, hurt and anger and, and things that, that, are, that are young. It's a young us that's impacted. And you want to help and you want to have the love, but at the same time, you're scared and frustrated and, um, yeah, terrified. If you're drinking again, is, is, is everything going to fall apart again? And, um, and the reality is, as painful as it is to say, the reality is there's not a damn thing you can do. That's the truth. Not a mm -hmm. damn thing you can do um, in terms of her. What you can do is take care of you. Yeah. And so that's where the the work comes in with ACOA work. Um, I like ACOA a lot more than Al-Anon. Al-Anon is um, a little more pedantic and I'm less... Yeah, that, that doesn't work as well for me. But a lot of the books with ACOA stuff, it talks about what it's bringing up for you because you can't change your mother. Um, what you can do is draw really, really clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. I love you. I love you. I cannot be around you when you're drinking. I'd love to see you for lunch, but not for dinner because I know, and you don't even have to say this to her. This is a boundary for yourself. But I know at five o'clock you're going to be drinking again and I'm not going to meet you for dinner. But I'm willing to meet you for lunch and see you before you've started drinking. That kind of thing that you're making the boundary clear with yourself. Um, and that if she talks to you about wanting help, then you refer her in another direction and you don't try and help because that's not your job and you're still the kid and she's um, you're both adults but she's still the parent and so say I really hope you get help um, and here's some possibilities I can't do this for you yeah those kind of boundaries that are really hard really painful especially when we go into magical thinking as a kid and think I can do this I can help her I can make her better etc and um, I, I love the idea. I mean, I don't know how much authenticity there is to this, but what I've read, what I've heard is there's a Native American belief that if you heal this addiction, you are healing past generations and forward generations. So you're mm. going back and you're going forward and you're healing um, people around you as well. So keeping yourself healthy, keeping yourself well-boundaried is the best thing you can do. The thing I love most about your book is that it offers tools and a program of sorts for thank you that they that individuals can use in a private settings. I mean, I know it's helped me cope with the situation that I'm in. 
Oh, thank and you so much. I appreciate it. My um, my second book that I'm working on now that I'm calling Recovery Road Trip. That's my working title. We'll see if the publisher agrees. But anyway, um, <laughs> and it's it's a similar format where it's a, um, where it's an allegorical story, and then the second half is a journaling workbook. And the reason I do that is because that's what works for me. So I offer an option that's worked for me. But if it doesn't work, find something that does. And 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 it's again, it's that connection to your inner self, to that brightest best part of you that so many of us have lost touch with. And when we lose touch through addiction, but we also lose touch through um, just not taking the time to be with ourselves through meditation, through creativity. Those are ways that we can reconnect to our highest, deepest, best self. And, And when we connect to that then we then we emerge then we touch in we tap in um and to me that's just so vital yeah join patty's email list to to find out about the new book when it's going to be released and all the details you can visit her website at pattyclark.org that's p-a-t-t-i-c-l-a-r-k.org she also shares helpful resources and videos Her book, This Way Up, is available now on Amazon. We will share all the links to the show in our notes, available on our website, baronero.com. Patty, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. It's been wonderful. I've really, really enjoyed it. And you haven't, yeah, this, you know, we don't have the video, but my hands have been flying while I've been talking. (laughs) I've had several tears and um, it's just such a joy to talk to both of you. And thank you so much for the service that you're doing for your authenticity and for your vulnerability. I I just really um, appreciate it so much. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll tune in next Friday.